Apparently not getting a new trial, the real questions. To the mystery deaths in Kansas City of those Chiefs fans, let us know what crime stories you want us to talk about. We'll see you then. For now, Banfield starts right now. This week has been long, and this mystery is going on too long. Except that today I think we may have solved something about Kansas City. The whole three guys found dead in the backyard frozen. Oh, how'd that happen? Well, we've got some clues now. Actually, more than just a few clues. And now we actually have even more information about what happened to the parents when they wanted to ID the bodies. Let me just say this. If any government official had said to me what these government officials said to at least one family about IDing their son, I shouldn't say because I'd be arrested. I've got that exclusive for you tonight. And also this whole notion that, yeah, uh, there may be a really solid connection now to rehab and to drugs. I know we're all thinking it. But now we may have a really solid connection. I got the whole story for you and also what the police missed, what they left at Jordan Willis's home and maybe should have taken with them to investigate. We've got that for you too. And then did you hear this? If you've been busy all day, and I understand if you have, um, there's a big movement in the Idaho 4 story. There is a big movement with Brian Koberger's defense. They have made a very, very big ask. And guess what? It ain't like I haven't heard it before. It doesn't always work. They don't like the local jurors. They don't want locals on the jury. Hmm, wonder why. But aren't we all locals now? I mean, think about it. Aren't we all locals now, right? We all get the news. Doesn't matter where you live. I'm going to dig into it and find out, are they going to get what they want? Will it even matter? And then, listen, if you do a lot of that internetting, I hope you weren't doing it last night about 9 o'clock at night. I hope you, I swear to God, I hope you were not one of the 5,000 people. Because there are 5,000 people who can never unsee what they saw on the internet before all the social media platforms had to rip that filth down. It was a man who held up what he said was the severed head of his father. We can't even show you anything near what I had to go through and what 5,000 people went through. But I can tell you this. We've made some contact with friends of this young man and colleagues classmates, and oh my God, were there red flags. I'm going to tell you all about it. It's coming shortly, but first this. He was asleep for two whole days. And he just didn't notice that three of his friends were dead and frozen in his backyard. It did not make sense to me. It did not make sense to you. There had to be a better explanation. Tonight, we may be closer to that explanation because Jordan Willis the man who invited David Harrington, Ricky Johnson, and Clayton McGinney to come on over and hang out at his house after the Kansas City football game three weeks ago. Well, he has just checked himself into rehab. That's according to multiple reports. 
citing a source close to Jordan Willis's family. The reports say the deaths of his friends were, quote, an enormous wake-up call, and that Jordan plans to, quote, face his addiction head-on, end quote. That's a piece of the puzzle. That is a really big piece of the puzzle that up until now has been a complete mystery. I mean, people have been speculating since day one that drugs must have been involved because how could three grown men simply die out in the cold? Well, we know now that drugs at Jordan's home were a thing. Apparently a really, really big bad thing. And we also know that if Jordan's drug abuse was this bad, that he needs rehab, I guess it would make perfect sense that a two-day drug bender would keep someone from noticing three dead friends in the backyard. Remember, by profession, Jordan is an HIV scientist. And now we're hearing something else. We're hearing from another source connected to the victims that Jordan was the man to call for tailor-made drugs. An allegation. Got more on that in just a moment, so hang tight. Uh, these three victims, they'd all been buddies since high school, and our Alex Capriello was able to dig up these photos. Uh, David, Jordan, uh, David, and then Jordan, and then also Ricky's yearbook photos. TMZ is reporting that there are a few other connections that the group had to drugs, legal and otherwise. Some of this is kind of hard to hear, I'll be honest with you, because these guys are victims, right? So the outlet says that Clayton McGinney had an active pharmacist license and that David Harrington had been arrested in 2011 for possession of a controlled substance. Um, right here on this network, Ricky Johnson's father told us that he thinks that his son used drugs but didn't abuse drugs. It's a big difference. But none of this proves... Anything. It really doesn't prove how David and Ricky and Clayton wound up dead before they turned 40. And after what was just a typical Sunday, a Sunday in January, watching their beloved Kansas City Chiefs. Police say they're really not going to have much more to go on, so don't hang your hat on that. They're going to wait for those toxicology reports to come back, and still that could take weeks. But prosecutors met with the families of the three victims today. And we're going to talk to Ricky Johnson's family about that meeting in just a moment. But first, News Nation's national correspondent, Alex Capriello, has been way out front on this story. He's live now um, in Kansas City. So do you have any confirmations on this story that, um, that Jordan Willis has checked into rehab? Yeah, it was one source of mine that I've met here in Kansas City who knows Jordan from early high school days was the first person to actually tell me that yesterday. And I've been working very hard to speak to other sources, trying to get that individually confirmed. And I'll tell you this, all of the people that I've been speaking to, a lot of high school classmates and also who knew Jordan from college, this is all they're talking about. This is something that's new to them. Uh, but actually independently confirming it, I have not been able to, but it is something that was shared with me early on yesterday. I'm just getting news coming in, breaking as we're speaking, Alex. So, so bear with me for one second. Our, our local Next Star station in that area is confirming that a source close to the family 
um, indeed says that he's checked into to rehab. So now it's not just multiple media sources, right. your source, but also the next door. I think we've got enough sources now to, to right. fairly uh, confirm that he's in rehab. You did get a chance also to speak to the cousin of one of the victims, of, of Clayton McGinney's cousin. I think his name is Caleb. What did Caleb know, and right. what did he share with you? Yeah, I'll tell you what, Caleb is very, very distraught, as any family member might be, because this was just an unexpected death to happen to him. He says Clayton was like his brother. He was cousins with him, but they were like brothers. They were like this. Uh, and so to have something like this happen to him and his family is just devastating. He was actually showing up at the Platte County prosecutor's office where the other parents of these three victims were told to go today for a meeting with the prosecutor, but he wasn't allowed into that room because it was specifically for parents only. Even still, he's really hurting about this because he feels like he knows what happened, something that the rest of the country is surmising what happened, which is drug use, abuse, and overdosing. And he says he knows a lot about Jordan Willis, the fact that he goes back all the way to high school. He knows the drug habits that happened within this circle of friends and that he often says that Jordan was a supplier for that. Of course, this is an allegation from Caleb. This is not something that's been independently confirmed from law enforcement. But he says he has a theory about what happened and he thinks that Jordan is responsible. Take a listen. A lot of times I'm hearing that David, Clay, uh, David Clayton and Ricky were like brothers. Jordan was kind of off on the side. Mm -hmm. True. Jordan's a chemist, bro. Jordan's what? Jordan's a chemist. They all knew him as that. It was easy for them to go have fun, but he f***ed up. He made a mistake. Jordan was the chemist. He, he's a scientist, right? He does what he needs to do. And now, to use my cousin, my best friend, as a guinea pig? No. What about Alex Lee? What do you know about him? I know him. Yeah. Any any idea that he might have brought drugs? Hell no. No? Jordan had him. Jordan was the one. So you don't think any more attention should be paid on Alex Lee? Alex Lee is a good man. He's a good man. Um, Alex Lee is a solid. He was one of their best friends forever. Jordan is somebody that is known from high school as like creating drugs for people to make them feel better in certain situations. Okay, well, you want to do this? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make this for you. I'm going to make this for you. I'm going to make this for you. And handing them out. At this point, the country knows what's going to happen, right? What the toxicology reports are going to happen. What they're going to reveal. We all know that, okay? Who is the one that gave it to them? And who is the one that needs to be held responsible? Where did it come from? The police are doing their job. If it takes time, it takes time. I will never tell them they're not doing what they should be doing. They're doing the best they can. It takes time. Because you want it to be correct at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And that's what I hope, is when at the end of the day it comes out, it comes out correct. And when you think about it, there's a difference between Jordan and the three men. Those guys had relationships. They had children. Uh, but I keep hearing that Jordan was a single guy who had a house, who had access to drugs. And so it would make sense that those men might go there and use drugs recreationally. Of course, we don't know that for sure until a toxicology report comes out. But all of my sources are saying just about the same thing, that this is very normal activity when surrounded by Jordan.
One other thing I want to ask you about, um, our next to our station, the local station there, um, they found out that at least one person in that house was up until 2 a.m., so Sunday into Monday morning, up late, late, late into 2 a.m. Monday morning, at least once, which is fascinating given all of these, the, the timeline of right. events. But Alex uh, Weimer Lee, I think he called himself, he calls himself Alex Lee, says he left at midnight, everything was right. fine. You were able to talk with Alex Lee. Did he, did he shed any more light on, on that or anything else? The fact that, that apparently someone or all of them were up until 2 a.m. or anything else? I have not been able to talk to Alex Lee. I've been trying to talk to Alex Lee. That's been my number one mission while here because I know that he was one of the very last people, if not the last person, to see these four men, Jordan and those three that are now deceased. And so obviously his testimony, his story is going to be critical to this. But I did try to stop by his house that we found through background checks, knocking on his door. Uh, you could tell it's most likely his house. Kansas City Chiefs flags hanging everywhere. Uh, and the addresses matches up to our typical backgrounding system. But I cannot find the guy. Uh, really hard to find him. We do know that he also has a lawyer. I'm told from my sources that it seems like he is willing to talk soon because he knows that there is a lot of bad mouthing that's happening about him. Because as you heard me mention to Caleb, is there any possibility that Alex Lee brought the drugs? They know that that could be a possibility, a theory out there. And so I wanted to get to the bottom of it. I'm trying to find Alex Lee. But from Caleb's perspective, he does not believe that Alex Lee is responsible for this. He believes that Jordan is the one that's actually making these drugs and providing them to his friends. And I would just assume that you talked to him because you are that good a reporter. But Alex, I see you knocking on the door and I know you're going to get that interview. Thank you for everything. You just keep breaking news left, right and center. Alex, thank you. Appreciate it. Um, listen, folks, waiting for answers is super hard. It's hard for everybody involved, but it is agony for the, for the families. And I had a chance to speak earlier today with Linda Johnson. That's Ricky Johnson's stepmom. And she had she was just literally fresh out of a meeting with the county prosecutors, so I asked her about it. Linda, how did the meetings go today with the Platte County prosecutors? It went well. We got um, just reassurance that they are looking into this case fully. They didn't give any specifics on you know, evidence or what they found or what they haven't found. They, they just reassured us that it is being investigated. Did they make any mention of Jordan Willis and reports that he uh, checked himself into rehab uh, recently? They only mentioned that there is a rumor of that. They don't have any verification of that. But they acknowledged they had heard that same report. Yes, they did acknowledge that. Linda, did they give any further descriptions of the way um, the bodies were found in the backyard? No, they did not. And they said they weren't going to get specifics because they didn't want to take aim to the investigation. They didn't want to um, paint any possible uh, anything going forward. So they just weren't getting into specifics. And it must be so frustrating, especially since this most recent report that David Harrington was found seated in one of those lawn chairs out back. Did they say anything about what David and Ricky and Clayton were wearing out back? 
They did not. Like I said, they did not um, give us anything on the investigation side. They didn't want to um, possibly, if you know, you were called in to be a uh, a uh, what is the word I'm looking for? If you were called into court to answer questions, they didn't want to take what you might say. Understandable, understandable. Um, I know that April Mahoney, who is Clayton McGinney's fiance, made the discovery, at least of one of the bodies. Can you explain that or describe that as you have learned from her? How exactly did she see the body that she saw? Was it through a window? Did she go into the backyard? Like, how did it happen? My understanding is she entered the house through the front into the basement. And she went upstairs and was looking through a window and saw the body seated on the back patio in a chair. So she was able to see through a window that David Harrington was seated in that lawn chair on that back patio. Did she mention if it was the kitchen window or if it was the doorway window or the it might be a sunroom or a breakfast nook? Uh, did she mention which window? She did not. And I have not personally talked to her. This is just... Did she information that I have received secondhand? Were you or your husband, Ricky, asked to come and identify Ricky's son, Ricky Jr.? Uh, who, who made the identification um, for the police? Um, we were not asked to go um, identify the body. They told us that the bodies um, have to thaw out, they were frozen, and that could have possibly have taken to that Friday. Well, we weren't really willing to wait that long. So I called the medical examiner the next day and um, I started describing Ricky's tattoos and his piercings. And she told me um, that that was one of the deceased that she had. Did you ask if you could come and um, make that identification personally yourselves? I did ask the, I did call the police and ask them if, if that is something we could do so we could get that identification sooner because you still hold the hope that he is going to come home. You want to make sure that that's him. I was told that that's something that you only see in these people to identify by. To be clear, they said that's something that's only something they do in the movies if you wanted to identify right. Ricky yourselves. Is that clear? Yes, that's that's for me. And that's not necessarily true. I, I mean, that, that's sad. I'm sorry that you were told that. Um, I, do, I do want to ask you about the personal belongings that you mentioned to my colleague, Chris Cuomo, that there were personal belongings of Ricky Jr.'s that uh, you were able to retrieve, but that the police never did. What, what were those belongings? They were his um, wallet, his car keys. He had some, uh, I 
like antacids, uh, ibuprofen, and it was in a backpack. That backpack was still so, in the house, in Jordan's house. Ricky, Ricky Jr.'s backpack was still in Jordan's house. The police did not retrieve it. No, they did not. And you had a chance to speak with Alex Weimer Lee, who was the fifth man who reportedly left at midnight. What did he tell you? I am not going to go into uh, what, what Alex said. Um, I, I don't really want to um, say anything that, because he's um, not come forward himself and he's not, and I believe he's um, not been fully identified. I, I'm, the, I'm not going to comment on that. Can I just ask if he, if he discussed at all um, the issue of potential drug use, especially given this rumor today about uh, Jordan Willis entering rehab? Did he mention anything about, about drugs that night? No, he did not. It is such a mystery. Linda, I have so many more questions, as I know you do. And please, um, from our family to your family, I am so sorry for what you are all going through. And I just pray you get answers sooner than the rest of us get them. I really mean that. I don't know. Thank you for that. That's Linda Johnson, uh, Ricky Johnson Jr.'s stepmother. We will continue to update you. Obviously, Alex is working out in the field as we speak. He will break in if he gets something throughout this program as well. And coming up next, a huge ask from Brian Koberger. Whenever his capital murder trial gets underway, and it won't be soon, Koberger says he does not want any local faces on his jury. His team just filed a change of venue motion with a twist. Guess where he wants his jury to come from? That story's next. Uh, have you ever thrown a dart at a map and then wondered if you'd visit there? I have another exercise for you. Throw a dart at a map and ask the people under that dart if they know who Brian Koberger is. I'm a lay odds they know. I'm a lay odds you really can't throw a dart anywhere and have people not know. But still, for whatever reason, the uh, defense team for Brian Koberger wants a change of venue for their client. They do not like the idea of local Leita County jurors being there sitting in judgment of Brian Koberger. Same county where the murders happen. Same county where likely the trial will happen. No, instead... They want to go out into Idaho and, and get the jurors from somewhere else and bring them in. So not so much the change of venue, the change of the jurors, the venue from where they came from. Let me read to you uh, what they said in their change of venue. They said, a fair and impartial jury cannot be found in Latah County owing to the extensive inflammatory pretrial publicity allegations made about Mr. Koberger to the public by media that will be inadmissible at his trial. The small size of the community, the salacious nature of the alleged crimes, and the severity of the charges Mr. Koberger faces. This is not unheard of, folks. No, big trials get moved all the time for whatever reason. Scott Peterson's was moved 90 miles away. They wanted better security after huge, intense public scrutiny. Timothy McVeigh, that one was moved from Oklahoma City to Denver 
same argument, impartial jury. Um, a judge decided to move the D.C. sniper trial more than 100 miles away. And the big kahuna, I knew you knew, Casey Anthony. That jury was really hard to pick. I sat through it. It took forever, and they couldn't do it. Not in Orlando. Instead, they didn't move the trial. They went out to bus in the jurors from Pinellas County, about nine, 90 miles away from Orlando. So that's why I called Dave Ehrenberg. He's a veteran prosecutor, state attorney for Palm Beach County. Does it make any difference, Dave Ehrenberg, at all in this day and age when we all have our cell phones and we know everything on the internet? Where are you going to pick your jury? Good to be with you, Ashley. I don't think it matters that much because you say we're all interconnected nowadays. And it's not that the jurors have heard something about the case. They're allowed to know about the case. They just have to be able to put their biases aside. And I think no matter where you are, small town, big city, you could find 12 jurors who would agree to listen to the evidence and base their verdict on the evidence. And no one has more of an incentive to catch the right guy than the people of Ta County right there. They want to make sure the right killer is behind bars and they don't convict the wrong person so that the real killer goes free. I don't understand how Laytalk County is any different than another quarter, corner of, of Idaho or even New Mexico or New York, for that, for that matter. I feel like we are all the same. We have flattened out uh, because of, you know, social media and our phones and just digital media in general. I do want to ask you this, though. If they do go ahead and pick a jury from some other corner of Idaho, how are you going to do it? How, like, what is the protocol? You're going to bust them in and then make them stay at a hotel sequestered? Because this looks to be eight to 12 weeks long at this point. How, how would you pull it off? Yeah, we had a case like that, a high-profile case in my jurisdiction. And what happens is you do the initial voir dire, the questioning of the jury in the community where you're going to pull from. And then when you select the jurors, then you bring them in and then they're sequestered or they're at least put up in a hotel locally and they're away from their families and they're not too thrilled about that unless they've got a bad family life but they're they're stuck in that community and uh it's it's a burden for them and also i think it tends to lead to quicker verdicts because if a jury knows that the quicker they can rule the quicker they get to go home then they're like all right let's just get through it forget the hung jury whatever let's go so i like it better when you have a local jury and you have a community that says how it feels instead of having people who have no connection to the case. I think you can find a fair and impartial jury, even in Laytock County. I know you're old enough to remember O.J. Simpson. And you know what? I keep coming back to it. They found a jury for O.J. Problem was they sequestered them for nine months. So by the time they came to jury deliberations, if you don't know this, they arrived with their bags packed. And they were like, like under four hours for the, for the verdict. So you're right. As always, you're right. Dave Ehrenberg, thank you for this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ashley. All right. Still to come, folks. Uh, horror, absolute horror in Pennsylvania and really all across the Internet. A man decapitates his own father and then shows it off to the world, all the while ranting about the government. Why is he smiling in this mugshot? Police say they're trying to figure out what was going on in that mind. But guess what? We might already have the answers. Exclusive information from the suspect's former co-workers and classmates next. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. 
They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. If uh, you were one of the roughly 5,000 people who saw that YouTube post last night, I am so sorry. It was taken down, but if you saw it, my God, maybe get help. That man, Justin Mohn, uh, a self-proclaimed messiah and political activist, lifted a bloody severed head in a plastic bag, ranting on YouTube that it was the head of his own father, a federal employee of 20 years. And tonight we have some disturbing new details about Justin Mohn. Warning signs from somebody who worked with him about 10 years ago, including disturbing thoughts on government and religion and aliens. And I've got all of that in just a moment. But first, some additional details about the crime itself, the first-degree murder charge and the abuse of a corpse allegation. The victim in this picture God, is, is, is Moan's own father, Michael Moan. Police responded to a 911 call about 7 o'clock last night. And um, Michael Moan's wife had come home to find her husband's body decapitated in a first floor bathroom. Police found Michael Moan's head inside a plastic bag in a kitchen pot in a first floor bedroom. They found bloody rubber gloves in a second floor bedroom. And in a second floor bathroom, they found a machete and a large kitchen knife in the tub. The victim's wife told the police that her husband's car, a white Toyota Corolla, was missing, and so was her son, Justin. So the investigators pinged Justin's phone, and they found him and the car about 100 miles away. He was arrested at 9.30 last night. He had a gun on him when the police tracked him down. And now to those details from the co-worker who talked to us today. They did not want to be identified, but what they shared with us is pretty eye-opening. The source says that when they knew Moan back in 2013 and 2014, Moan was, quote, weird and odd and unlike anyone they'd met before. Moan told them he had hoped to be a missionary and go around the world that he would constantly discuss theories and philosophy and that he was obsessed with aliens. He told his co-workers that he hoped to make contact with aliens one day, but that they probably wouldn't visit Earth because, quote, humans are pathetic. On his lunch break, he would go to the ShopRite grocery store, drink a glass of wine, and people watch. But apparently he was afraid to drive. The source told us that he would stare blankly at his co-workers and had trouble talking to people because, in his mind, no one was on his intellectual level. Moan did write books, several of them. Here are the, the titles, The Second Messiah, The Kingdom of Darkness, and then there's this one, Poems I Wrote While I Was Stoned. He also recorded albums, most of them singing off-key. I want to bring in Tom Sofield. He's a reporter and publisher of levittownnow.com, the local news source for the area where the killing happened. He's been covering this case better than anyone. Tom, what is the latest that you're hearing about all of this? The arrest, the, the, the suspect himself, uh, the crime? Tell me. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, as of this evening and throughout the day, new information has come out since Justin Moan has been arrested. Some new details on his arrest at Fort Indian Town Gap, a Pennsylvania National Guard base. It's about 18,000 acres, uh, about two hours away from the, the scene of the crime. And that's where uh, law enforcement, uh, the base's police department, along with Pennsylvania State Police, 
were able to arrest Justin Moan. And as it turned out, he had actually breached the perimeter fence and made his way onto that base. Uh, police in Bucks County, uh, the Bucks County detectives and Middletown Township police were able to use pings to his cell phone to figure out where he was. And, and that did lead to his arrest. He was found with a firearm, according to reports uh, from the area of the base. So, Tom, I'm just looking that that his father, the, the victim here, was with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Is there any connection to that base? So far, we don't know of any connection. Uh, my understanding from sources is that the father did work in the Philadelphia region. This is a little bit outside. There could be a connection, but nothing concrete that we firmed up at this point. So a co-worker told us that um, while attending Penn State, Justin Moan got into some trouble there at a frat house. Do you know about any other problems that have uh, surfaced? Sure. So federal court papers uh, that we dug into overnight uh, shortly after a confirmation of the beheading came out uh, showed that in Colorado Springs, uh, in a footnote in a federal court document, it was listed that Justin Moan had some sort of domestic issues. We don't know exactly what, and the Colorado Springs Police Department was involved. I can say in Bucks County, he doesn't seem to have any uh, previous, at least adult, criminal charges prior to yesterday's incident. Uh, but we did talk to uh, people who knew him uh, in high school and after, and they did say progressively as he got a bit older after high school and college, he did seem to get a bit more peculiar. Um, and he was always a bit of a unique individual, uh, but that just seemed to grow. And that's similar to what uh, the source is telling you as well. So then also he sued Progressive Insurance, where he worked in Colorado. Apparently he was upset he wasn't promoted. He thought women were given a priority, but then ultimately he got fired from there. What did he do? Sure. So what happened there, that was uh, one of his lawsuits. After graduating college, Penn State in 2014 as a business major, he moved to Colorado. He worked at a credit union and then Progressive Insurance uh, as a customer service agent. He had not been there very long. He was upset that in his mind, he thought the women were getting promoted and that he wasn't. He was kind of being left behind. And he ended up being terminated, according to court papers, because he kicked open a door to an office there. And that led to his termination. But it, it kind of gave an insight into what appeared to be grievances he had, um, often with women, uh, obviously the federal government, based on statements he said. And then, of course, those, those former classmates he spoke with saying that he was a nice kid who got distant and eccentric and embraced conspiracies. This is so troubling. Tom, great reporting. Uh, you know, come Thank back you. to us and let us know what else you discover about this. I feel so horrible for the Moan family. That picture that we showed, they looked so normal. They all lived together, it seemed, in that same house. And, and then this, oh, this horrible thing that's befallen them. Thank you for your reporting. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, uh, still to come, the OnlyFans model who stabbed her boyfriend to death almost two years ago might soon have some company in the Miami jail where she is waiting to go on trial because the prosecutors just charged her parents with getting a little too involved in this case. I'll explain it next. And that might be the lesson that the parents of Courtney Clenny needed to hear before being arrested. Kim and Deborah Clenny, parents of the Instagram influencer, are now being swept up in their daughter's murder woes. 
You will probably remember that that beautiful Instagram influencer, um, she was also known as Courtney Taylor. Her real name is Courtney Clenny, but she went by Courtney Taylor. And she was known that way to two million followers on OnlyFans. She was arrested and charged with stabbing her boyfriend to death. And it was not pretty. She was cuffed while crying in the lobby, covered in blood. That was back in 2022. It resulted in that photo. And that photo. And Courtney has been in a Miami jail ever since. She insists... Oof, those pictures. She insists that she killed her boyfriend, Christian Ambuselli, in self-defense. But years of police records and at least two explosive videos show a very toxic and violent history with Courtney, often as the aggressor. So where do her parents come in? Well, they were arrested yesterday in Austin, Texas, on a felony charge of unauthorized access to a computer. Christian Ombuselli's computer. The victim's computer. Somehow the victim's laptop wound up in Courtney's parents' possession. And allegedly, they did their darndest, as middle-aged non-hackers, to hack it. Again, allegedly. But that meant having Courtney's attorneys visit her in jail and get a list of possible passwords. The authorities found thousands of texts between the Clennies and Courtney's legal team. I'm going to read just a couple of them, because why not? Uh, Kim, the father, writes this. Are there any PIN passwords we can try before you see her tomorrow? And the next day, he must have guessed right, because he wrote, hell yeah, that PIN worked. One of Courtney's lawyers uh, then writes, Kim, hold off on going through the computer, please. I don't want to turn you into a witness just yet if you find something useful. Kim says he didn't open any files, and a few days later, Deborah gave the laptop to the lawyers. But the state says that the damage was already done. State of Florida, that is, which is trying to extradite the Clenny parents from Texas and planning to charge their daughter, Courtney, with the very same thing that her parents face. And that would be in addition to the second-degree murder that she's jailed for. One of Courtney's attorneys now says, we are extremely surprised and very concerned about the arrest of the Clenny family. This could be an example of prosecutorial overreach and misconduct. We believe the Clenny family has been targeted with some trumped-up charges to discredit them in the press and make their lives miserable. So what does the family of the victim think? Well, luckily, I am now joined by their lawyer, Kim Wald. Uh, Kim, thanks for being on. What, what do the Ambuselli family members think about this? So the family is absolutely outraged by by this new piece of information. The Clenny crime family continues to terrorize this family. Not only did they take Christian's laptop, they broke into it. You know, after this horrible tragedy occurred, the the family absolutely begged the Clennies, begged them to get any of Christian's belongings, to get one blanket, one photograph, anything so that they could remember their loved one. And absolutely nothing was given to them. And now we learn that the family actually had his belongings, not only had it, kept it for months and went through the trouble, went through the hassle of actually hacking into it. It is outrageous. It is unconscionable. And it, it, it is a crime. And the state attorney's office and the law enforcement did a thorough investigation, and they will stand trial for this crime. You cannot hack into someone else's personal laptop without their permission, period. That is a crime in Florida, and they must be held and accountable in, in the law. Of course, they're innocent, innocent till proven guilty, as we, as we all know. It's important to, to point that out. Meantime, what about the attorney's? that I just quoted the conversations that were going back and forth. Are they exposed here? 
You know, the, the attorneys, it's as a fellow attorney in Florida, it's a very sad day when we see attorneys caught up in situations like this. As you said, pursuant to the arrest warrant, the attorneys here went to Courtney, got the some list of passwords and sent it to the parents. And then at some point, the attorneys actually took possession of the laptop. You know, we will find out a lot more information once the state conducts their forensic evaluation of the laptop to see if there are any additional charges that will be filed. Kim Wald, uh, this is not the last you and I are going to talk, that's for sure. Will you join us again as this continues to develop? Absolutely. I, I, would, I wish it would be the last time, but unfortunately, I, I think we'll probably be seeing each other again soon. A lot more to come. Look forward to our next conversation. Thank you for this one. I appreciate it. Coming up next, who would do this to the Mona Lisa? She's never bothered anybody. She's arguably the world's most famous painting with that little mysterious smile, but nobody was smiling after these clowns threw soup all over her face. We have the video of the attack and an update on the Mona Lisa's condition next. If you have ever been lucky enough to see the Mona Lisa in person, you'll know how hard it is actually to see the Mona Lisa in person because it is like smaller than you think. Uh, there's always a huge crowd around it, and there are guards everywhere, right? And yet, protesters were still able to throw pumpkin soup at that precious work of art. Their message? Well, that's an easy one. They were yammering away in French to everybody within earshot. Qu'est-ce que c'est? What is more important, art or healthy, sustainable food? Here's how it sounded. If I'd been there, I would have yelled, Ferme ta gueule! Shut your mouth! Because the rough verbatim of what they said was the women, like, were yelling, you know, what's more important, like, food or, or whatever. Who cares at this point, right? Like, who cares? The museum workers had to rush in and get between the activists and the painting. And an entire wing of the Louvre was, was evacuated and closed for 90 minutes. According to the staff, um, no damage was done um, <laughs> because that Mona Lisa has been under armored glass since 2005. It's just the latest in a long list of protesters targeting famous works of art for whatever their messages are. But you know what? We don't know what their messages are because really what we end up talking about is how stupid they are. That's just me. Cuomo's next. Hey, I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Wednesday. We're live. So let's get after it. And I hope what we're going to be talking about tonight is proof of the crash and burn of the two party game with all we have going on that needs attention. 